0: Section seventeen of the Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Barring Gould. Seventeen. During the time that I lived in Essex, I had the pleasure of knowing Major Donnelly, retired on half pay, who had spent many years in India he was a man of great powers of observation and possessed an inexhaustible fund of information of the most valuable quality which he was ready to communicate to his intimates among whom was i major donnelly is now no more and the world is thereby the poorer major donnelly took an interest in everything anthropology mechanics archaeology physical science natural history the stock market politics In fact, it was not possible in conversation to broach a subject which he was not wholly unacquainted, and concerning which he was not desirous of acquiring further information. A man of his description is not to be held lightly. I grappled him to my heart. One day, when we were taking a constitutional walk together, I casually mentioned the Red Hills. He had never heard of them, inquired, and I told him what little I knew on the matter. The red hills are mounds of burnt clay of red-brick color, found at intervals along the fringe of the marshes on the east coast. Of the date of their formation, and the purpose they were destined to discharge, nothing has been certainly ascertained. Theories have been formed, and they have been held with to tenacity, but these are unsupported by any sound evidence. And yet, one would have supposed that these mysterious mounds would have been subject to a careful scientific exploration to determine the discovery of flint tools, post postherds, or coins, to what epoch they belong, and that some clue should be discovered as to their purport. But at the time, when I was in Essex, no such study had been attempted. Whether any has been undertaken since, I am unable to say. I mentioned to Donnelly some of the suppositions offered as to the origin of these red hills, that they represented salt-making works, that they were funereal erections that they were artificial bases for the huts of fishers. "'That is it,' said the Major. "'No doubt about it. Keep off the ague. Do you not know that burnt clay is a sure protection against ague, which was the curse of the Essex marshland? In Central Africa, in the districts that lie low, there is a morass. The natives are quite aware of the fact, and systematically form a bed of burnt clay as a platform on which to erect their hovels. Now look here, my dear friend. I'd most uncommonly like to take a boat along with you, and explore both sides of the Blackwater to begin with, and its inlets, and to take down on the Ordnance Map every red hill we can find.' "'I am quite ready,' I replied. "'There is one thing to remember. A vast number of these hills have been ploughed down. But you can certainly detect where they were by the color of the soil.' Accordingly, on the next fine day, we engaged a boat, not a rower for we could manage it between us and started our expedition the country around the blackwater is flat and the land slides into the sea and river in so slight an incline that a good extent of debatable ground exists which may be reckoned as belonging to both vast marshes are found occasionally flooded covered with wild lavender and in june flushed with the sea thrift they nourish a coarse grass and a bastard samphire These marshes are threaded, cobweb fashion, by myriads of lines of water and mud that intercommunicate. Woe to the man who either stumbles into it, or in jumping falls into, one of these breaks in the surface of land. He sinks to his waist in mud. At certain times, when no high tides are expected, sheep are driven upon these marshes and thrive. They manage to leap the runnels, and the shepherd is aware when danger threatens, and they must be driven off. Nearer the mainland are dykes thrown up, none know when, to reclaim certain tracts of soil, and on the land side are invariably stagnant ditches, where mosquitoes breed in myriads. Further up grow oak trees, and in summer to these the mosquitoes betake themselves in swarms, and may be seen in the evening swaying in such dense clouds above the trees that these latter seem to be on fire and smoking. Major Donnelly and I leisurely paddled about, running into creeks, leaving our boat, identifying our position on the map, and marking in the position of such red hills or their traces as we lighted on. Major Donnelly and I pretty well explored the left bank up to a certain point, when he proposed that we should push across to the other. I should advise doing thoroughly the upper reach of the Blackwater, said he, and we shall then have completed one section all right i responded and we turned the boat's head to cross unhappily we had not calculated that the estuary was full of mud-banks moreover the tide was ebbing and before very long we grounded confound it said the major we are on a mud-bank what a fix we are in we labored with the oars to thrust off but could touch no solid ground to obtain purchase sufficient for our purpose then said donnelly the only thing to be done is for one of us to step on to the bank and thrust the boat off i have on an old shabby pair of trousers that don't matter no indeed you shall not i will go and at the word i sprang overboard but the major had jumped simultaneously and simultaneously we sank into the horrible slime it had the consistency of spinach i do not mean such as english cooks send us to table half mashed and often gritty but the spinach served as at a french table de hot that has been pulped through a fine hair sieve and what is more it apparently had no bottom for aught i know it might go down a mile in depth towards the centre of the globe and a stank abominably we both clung to the sides of the boat to save ourselves from sinking altogether there we were one on each side clinging to the bulwarks and looking at one another for a moment or two neither spoke Donnelly was the first to recover his presence of mind, and after wiping his mouth on a gunwale from the mud that had squirted over it, he said, Can you get out? Hardly, said I. We tugged at the boat. It squelched about, splashing the slime all over us, till it plastered our heads and faces and covered our hands. This will never do, said he. We must get in together, and by installments, look here when i say three throw in your left leg if you can get it out of the mud i will do my best and he said further we must do so both at the same moment now don't be a sneak and try to get your body in whilst i'm putting in my leg or you will upset the boat i was never a sneak i retorted angrily and i certainly will not be one in what may be the throes of death all right said the major one two three Instantly both of us threw our legs out of the mud and projected them over the sides into the boat. How are you? he asked. Got your leg in all right? All but my boot, I replied, and that has been sucked off my foot. Oh, bother the boot, said the Major. So long as your leg is safe within, and has not been sucked off, that would have disturbed the equipoise. Now then, next we must have our trunks and right legs within. Take a long breath and wait till I call three we paused panting with a strain then donnelly in a stentorian voice shouted one two three instantly we writhed and strained and finally after a convulsive effort both were landed in the bottom of the boat we picked ourselves up and seated ourselves each one on one barlork, looking at one another we were covered with the foul slime from head to foot our clothes were caked so were our hands and faces but we were secure here said donnelly we shall have to remain for six hours till the tide flows and the boat is lifted it is of no earthly use for us to shout for help even if our calls were heard no one could come out to get us here then we stick and must make the best of it happily the sun is hot and will cake the mud about us and then we can pick off some of it the prospect was not inviting but i saw no means of escape presently donnelly said it is good that we brought our luncheon with us and above all some whisky which is the staff of life look here my fellow i wish it were possible to get this stinking stuff off our hands and faces it smells like the scouring poured down the sink in satan's own back kitchen there's not a bottle of claret in the basket yes i put one in then said he the best use we can put it to is to wash your hands and faces in it claret is a poor drink and there is whisky to fall back on the water has all ebbed away," I remarked. We cannot clean ourselves in that. Then uncork the St. Julien. There was really no help for it. The smell of the mud was disgusting, and it turned one's stomach. So I pulled out the cork, and we performed our ablutions in the claret. That done, we returned to our seats on the gunwale, one on each side, and looked sadly at one another. Six hours. That was an interminable time to spend on a mud flat in the Blackwater. Neither of us was much inclined to speak. After the lapse of a quarter of an hour, the Major proposed refreshments. Accordingly we crept together into the bottom of the boat, and there discussed the contents of the hamper, and we certainly did full justice to the whisky-bottle, for we were wet to the skin and be plastered from head to foot in the ill-savoured mud. When we had done the chicken and ham and drained the whisky-jar, we returned to our several positions vis-a-vis it was essential that the balance of the boat should be maintained major donnelly was now in a communicative mood i will say this observed he that you are the best informed and most agreeable man i have met with in colchester and kelmsford i would not record this remark but for what it led up to i replied i dare say i blushed but the claret in my face made it red anyhow i replied you flatter me not at all i always say what i think you have plenty of information and you'll grow your wings and put on rainbow colors what on earth do you mean i inquired you do not know said he that we shall all of us some day develop wings grow into angels what do you suppose those onions spring out of they do not develop out of nothing ex nihilo nihil fit you cannot think that they are the ultimate produce of ham and chicken nor of whiskey," he repeated you know it is so with the grub grub is ambitious i observed i do not mean the victuals but the caterpillar the creature that spends its short life in eating 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 look at a cabbage leaf it is riddled with holes the grub has consumed all that vegetable matter and i will inform you for what purpose it retires into its chrysalis and during the winter a transformation takes place and in spring it breaks forth as a glorious butterfly The painted wings of the insect in its second stage of existence are sublimated cabbage it has devoured in its condition of larva. Quite so. What has that to do with me? We are also in our larva condition. But do not for a moment suppose that the wings we shall put on, with rainbow painting, are the produce of what we eat here, of ham, chicken, kidneys, beef, and the like. No, sir, certainly not. They are fashioned out of the information we have absorbed, the knowledge we have acquired during the first stage of life. How do you know that? I will tell you, he answered. I had a remarkable experience once. It's a rather long story, but as we have some five hours and a half to sit here looking at one another till the tide rises and floats us, I may as well tell you, and it will help to the laying on of the colors on your pinions when you acquire them. Would you like to hear the tale? above all things. There is a sort of prologue to it," he went on. "'I cannot well dispense with it, as it leads up to what I particularly want to say. By all means let me have the prologue, if it be instructive.' "'It's eminently instructive,' said he. "'But before I begin, just pass me the bottle, if there's any whiskey left.' "'It is drained,' I said. "'Well, well, it can't be helped. When I was in India, i moved from one place to another and i had pitched my tent in a certain spot i had a native servant i forget what his real name was and it does not matter i always called him alec he was a curious fellow and the other servants stood in awe of him they thought that he saw ghosts and had familiar dealings with the spiritual world he was honest as natives go he would not allow any one else to rob me but of course he filched things of mine himself we are accustomed to that, and think nothing of it. But it was a satisfaction that he kept the fingers of others off my property. Well one night, when, as I have informed you, my tent was pitched on a spot I considered eminently convenient, I slept very uncomfortably. It was as though a centipede were crawling over me. Next morning I spoke to Alec and told him my experiences, and bade him search well my mattress and the floor of my tent. A Hindu's face is impassive. But I thought I detected in his eyes a twinkle of understanding. Nevertheless, I did not give it much thought. Next night it was as bad, and in the morning I found my panjamb slit from head to foot. I called Alec to me and held up the garment and said how uncomfortable I had been. Ah, sahib, said he, that is the doings of Abdul Hamid, the bloodthirsty scoundrel. Excuse me, I interrupted. Did he mean the present sultan of Turkey? No, quite another, of the same name. I beg your pardon, I said. But when you mentioned him as a bloodthirsty scoundrel, I supposed it must be he. It was not he. It was another. Call him, if you like, the other Abdul. But to proceed with my story. One inquiry more, said I. Surely Abdul Hamid cannot be a Hindu name. I did not say that it was, retorted the Major, with a touch of asperity in his tone. He was doubtless a Mohammedan but the name is rather Turkish or Arabic. I am not responsible for that. I was not his godfathers and godmothers at his baptism. I am merely repeating what Alec told me. If you are so captious, I shall shut up and relate no more." "'Do not take umbrage,' said I. "'I certainly have a right to test the quality of the material I take in, out of which my wings are to be evolved. Go ahead. I will interrupt no further.' Very well, then, let that be understood between us. Are you caking? Slowly, I replied. The sun is hot. I'm drying up on one side of my body. I think that we had best shift sides of the boat, said the major. It is the same with me. Accordingly, with caution, we crossed over, and each took the seat on the gunwale lately occupied by the other. There, said Donnelly, how goes the enemy? My watch got smothered in the mud and has stopped mine i explained is plastered to my waistcoat pocket and i cannot get at it without messing my fingers and there is no more claret left for a wash the whisky is all inside us well said the major it does not matter there is plenty of time before us for the rest of my story let me see where was i oh where alec mentioned Abdul Hamid, the inferior scoundrel not the sultan Alec went on to say that he was himself possessed of a remarkable keen scent for blood, even though it had been shed a century before his time, and that in my tent had been pitched and my bed spread over a spot marked by a most atrocious crime. That Abdul of whom he had made mention had been a man steeped in crimes of the most atrocious character. Of course, he did not come up in wickedness to his illustrious namesake, but that was because he lacked the opportunities with which the other was so favoured on the very identical spot where i then was this same blood-stained villain had perpetrated his worst iniquity he had murdered his father and mother and aunt and his children after that he was taken and hanged when his soul parted from his body in the ordinary course it would have entered into the shell of a scorpion or some other noxious creature and so have mounted through the scale of beans by one incarnation after another till he attained once more to the high estate of man excuse the interruption said i but i think you intimated that this abdul hamid was a mohammedan and the sons of the prophet do not believe in the transmigration of souls that said donnelly is precisely the objection i raised to alec but he told me that souls after death are not accommodated with a future according to the creeds they hold but according to destiny and whatever a man might suppose during life as to the condition of his future estate there was but one truth to which they would all have their eyes opened the truth held by the hindus viz the transmigration of souls from stage to sage ever progressing upward to man and then to recommence the interminable circle of reincarnation so said i it was abdul in the form of a scorpion who was tickling my ribs all night no sahib replied my native servant very gravely he was too wicked to be suffered to set his foot so to speak on the lowest rung of the ladder of existences the doom went forth against him that he must haunt the scenes of his former crimes till he found a man sleeping over one of them and on that man must be a mole and out of that mole must grow three hares these hares he must pluck out and plant on the grave of his final victims and water them with his tears and the flowing of these first drops of penitence would enable him to pass at once into the first stage of the circle of incarnations why said i that unredeemed ruffian was mole hunting over me the last two nights but what do you say to these slit panjams sahib replied alec he did that with his nails i presumed he turned you over and ripped them so as to get at your back and feel for the so much desired mole I'll have the tent shifted," said I. "'Nothing will induce me to sleep another night in this accursed spot.' Donnelly paused, and proceeded to take off some flakes of mud that had formed on his sleeve. We really were beginning to get drier, but in the drying we stiffened, as the mud became hard about us like pie-crust. "'So far,' said I, "'we have no wings.' "'I am coming to them,' replied the Major. "'I have now concluded the prologue. "'Oh, that was the prologue, was it?' Yes, you have anything against it? It was the prologue. Now I will go on with the main substance of my story. About a year after that incident I retired on half-pay and returned to England. What became of Alec I did not know, nor care hang. I had been in England for a little over two years, when one day I was walking along Great Russell Street, and passing the gates of the British Museum. I noticed a Hindu standing there, looking wretchedly cold and shabby. He had a tray containing bangles and necklaces and goo made in Germany, which he was selling as Oriental works of art. As I passed, he saluted me, and, looking steadily at him, I recognized Alec. "'Why, what brings you here?' I inquired, vastly astonished. "'Sahib may well ask,' he replied. I came over because I thought it might better my condition. I had heard speak of a psychical research society established in London and with my really extraordinary gifts I thought that I might be of value to it, and be taken in and paid an annuity if I supplied it continuously with well-authenticated first-hand ghost-stories. Well, said I, and have you succeeded? No, Sahib, I cannot find it. I have inquired after it from several of the crossing-sweepers, and they could not inform me of its whereabouts, and if I applied to the police, they bade me take myself off. There was no such a thing. I should have starved, Sahib, if it had not been that I had taken to this line," he pointed to his tray. "'Does that pay well?' I asked. He shook his head, very sadly. Very poorly. I can live. That is all. There goes in a meriwig. How many of these rubbishy bangles can you dispose of in a day?' I inquired. "'That depends, Sahib. It varies so greatly, and the profits are very small. So small I can barely get along. There goes in another merriwig. Where are all these things made, I asked? In Germany or in Birmingham? Oh, Sahib, how can I tell? I get them from a Jew dealer. He supplies various street hawkers, but I shall give it up. It does not pay, and shall set up a stall and dispose of Turkish delight. There is always a run on that. You English have a sweet tooth. That's a merriwig and he pointed to a doughty female with a reticule on her arm who at that moment went through the painted iron gates what do you mean by mare wigs said i does not sahib know alex's face expressed genuine surprise if sahib will go into the great reading-room he will see scores of them there it is their great london haunt they pass in all day mainly in the morning some are in very early so soon as the museum opens at nine o'clock and they usually remain there all day picking up information, acquiring knowledge. You mean the students. Not all the students, but a large percentage of them. I know them in a moment. Sahib is aware that I have great gifts for the discernment of spirits. By the way, broke off Donnelly, do you understand Hindustani? Not a word of it, I replied. I am sorry for that, said he, because I could tell you what passed between us so much easier in Hindustani. I am able to speak and understand it as readily as English, and the matter I am going to relate would come off my tongue so much easier in that language. You might as well speak it in Chinese. I should be none the wiser. Wait a moment. I am cracking. It was so. The heat of the sun was sensibly affecting our crust of mud. I think I must have resembled a fine old painting, the varnish of which is stained and traversed by an infinity of minute fissures, a perfect work of cracks i stood up and stretched myself and split in several places moreover portions of my muddy envelope began to curl at the edges don't be in too great a hurry to peel advised donnelly we have an abundance of time still before us and i want to proceed with my narrative go on then when are we coming to the wings directly replied he well then if you cannot receive what i have to say in hustani I must do my best to give you the substance of Alex's communication in the vulgar tongue. I will epitomize it. The Hindu went on to explain in this fashion. He informed me that with us, Christians and white people, it is not the same as with the dusky and yellow races. After death we do not pass into the bodies of the lower animals, which is a great privilege and ought to afford us immense satisfaction. We at once progress into a higher condition of life we develop wings as does the butterfly when it emerges from its condition of grub but the matter out of which the wings are produced is nothing gross they are formed or form themselves out of the information with which we have filled our brains during life we lay up during our mortal career here a large amount of knowledge of scientific historic philosophic and like acquisitions And these form the so to speak psychic pulp out of which, by an internal and mysterious altogether inexplicable process, transmutation takes place into our future wings. The more we have stored, the larger are our wings. The more varied the nature, the more radiant and colored is their painting. When at death the brain is empty, there can be no wing development. Out of nothing, nothing can arise. That is a law of nature, absolutely inexorable in its application, and this is why you will never have to regret sticking in the mud today, my friend. I have supplied you with such an amount of fresh and valuable knowledge that I believe you will have pinions painted hereafter with peacock eyes. I am most obliged to you," said I, splitting into a thousand cakes with the emotion that agitated me. End of seventeen. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Ogden, Utah voiceover solutionscom